Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. For free. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. As you've heard me mention before, I've got a new book coming out. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and it's based on this road trip that I took across the country back in January with my good friend Jeff Warren, who's an amazing meditation teacher from Canada. And I guess the backstory is uh, after I wrote 10% Happier, I kind of thought naively that everybody – who read it would start meditating that I, you know, if I made a good enough case, you know, based on the science and based on the fact that if I can do it, anybody can, uh, that people would start meditating. And I was really wrong about that. And it's become clear to me in the intervening years that habit formation is really difficult. And so the, the, the point of this next book is to sort of systematically uh, taxonomize, you know, classify, list all of the obstacles to meditation, such as I don't have time for this, or it's going to make me lose my edge, or um, I can't do it because my mind is too busy, to make a, a clear list of these obstacles and then to tackle them one by one. So Jeff and I got in this big bus back in January of, of 2017 and went across the country and met people who want to meditate but aren't. And we, you know, one by one helped people uh, figure out how to get over these various really significant obstacles so they can actually do the thing. One of the people we met uh, was this incredible neuroscientist named Dave Vago, who is uh, at Vanderbilt University and formerly of Harvard. And he is one of uh, he's on the cutting edge of, of the neuroscience uh, that's been done around meditation. He's basically looking at what meditation does to the brain, both for people kind of to use the an analogy that often gets used at the at the shallow end of the pool, in other words, sort of you know just a few minutes you know every few days, or like deep end of the pool people who who have been doing it for years and and spend years at a time you know or months at a time on silent retreat, and those findings are just utterly fascinating anyway, we met Dave on the road trip we oddly enough the the stuff that we did with Dave didn't make it into the book in the end, but he ended up being uh, our 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 key scientific advisor on the writing of the book and making sure that when we talked about science, we did so correctly. And we ended up turning all of the video we shot with him in his lab into a special course for the 10% Happier app. And so that's up on the, if you are a subscriber to the app, you can get the the course. Anyway, I've, I've been doing a lot of talking. Sorry, I'll try to shut up soon. But this interview is fascinating. We we talk about all sorts of, of stuff. So Long introduction, but here he is, Dave Vago. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, bit, my pleasure. Bit proof of the quality of your meditation practice. We deleted the, <laughs> this is the second time you come in for a podcast because the first time you came in, we lost the files, and you're like super good natured about it. We I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, this is such a natural conversation we're having. We could have this conversation any day, and I, I really just love talking with you. It's wonderful. Likewise, my friend. Yeah, Likewise. Yeah. So thank you for doing it, and thanks for being a good support. Yeah, my pleasure. I have so many things I want to talk to you. I want to talk about this new paper that you wrote, which okay. is really interesting and results in some very, uh, let's just say, interesting because we'll get into uh, – I have other adjectives, headlines that resulted as a consequence. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Oh, my God. And then I also want to talk about this yeah. new course you're doing uh, with us on the app. But but let me yeah. just start to, by just giving people a framework on who you are. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me how you started meditating in the first place? Yeah, I love this question. Um, you know, I, I think about 
I, I can't help myself, but synchronicity is a, a powerful way to think about meaningful coincidences, right? So you can either look at the sort of causal relations of how you, you know, certain things led up to a sort of a, an occurrence that was meaningful in some way, or you can look at it as a signpost. Um, and I often see my trajectory into this world uh, as a series of signposts and synchronicities. And, you know, I, I almost feel like that story you gave with your friend at, at film school was almost like a little little signpost towards, you know, being able to leave your attachments and not be attached to things. All right, let me just jump in and tell people what that was because I'm not sure people will have oh, heard. Oh, okay. okay. So uh, <laughs> just, just by way of background, okay, so so uh, Dave and I have been talking about the fact that he's a, a good sport about the fact that we deleted his first podcast, and I was telling him a story before we started recording that my friend, if you're listening, Harry Yoon, I'm still sorry. Harry Yoon is a guy I went – I did one semester at NYU Film and in college, just long enough, as I told Dave earlier, to realize that I was I sucked at making movies, <laughs> which was really useful for me. Actually, it really informed the decisions I made going forward. <clears throat> One of my favorite classmates is a guy named Harry Yoon, and he was also – there was a special semester they did for kids who were at liberal arts schools. And Harry – I was coming in from a school in Maine called Colby, and Harry was coming in from Williams in Massachusetts. And we made student films, and everybody played a different role in the film uh, each time, so – Sometimes you're the director, sometimes you're the cinematographer, blah, blah, blah. Harry's film, the time when he was a director, I was the cinematographer. We got back after a – he had planned this thing meticulously. We got back at the end of the day and I checked the film and I either hadn't pressed play or whatever you do on a on a movie camera or I hadn't loaded the film or I had loaded it backwards. <laughs> anyway, it was all gone. So uh, you're basically saying that if, in hindsight, this is a signpost of my first – or a first brush with impermanence. Yeah, yeah, like a dharma, dharmic and and karmic teaching. But 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 people are going to hear all the stuff you're saying about signposts oh, and synchronicity right. and dharmic mm-hmm. and karmic, and they're going to say, "Okay, wait, I thought yeah. this guy was a scientist. Right. Why is he so weird?" Yeah. Well, you know, you have these you know personal feelings. I think that you can't avoid, even when you talk about things like consciousness or spirituality. We all sort of have some general idea of what it is, but when you try to put it under the microscope, it's much more difficult. So I can have a belief in a spiritual experience and what something, what a spiritual experience means to me, for example, but to better understand what it is from a neurobiological point of view is much more difficult. But I'm not afraid of those questions and I, I, I actually think these types of you know, life experiences are, are where inspiration comes from um, to put difficult questions under the microscope and look at them and I just happen to use a neurobiological lens and you know, I can I can talk a little bit about you no. Know, I can't really say much about synchronicity and meaningful coincidences, but I can certainly talk about purpose and meaning in life, and that's really some of the main metrics by which we measure well being or happiness. So, you know, I put it in that frame, um, and the synchronicities that I was referring to is really how we get to where we're going and the path that we choose, and and what is what does give you purpose and meaning. And for me, it was this path of learning how to meditate, and then ending up studying it. And I can't say that there were real hard choices that I had to make, but really the choices were presented to me, and I made them following the same signposts along the way that led to where I am today, which is now the research director of a integrated medicine center at Vanderbilt University. And um, But it started with my uncle who was a psychiatrist. Um, he was also interested in 
uh, meditation and he was doing work with Stanislav Grof and holotropic breathing, which is a way of just manipulating your breath um, to sort of gain experience into your body. He recommended that I take a meditation course when I, when I was showing interest. And this was when I was about 20 years old in college. I was taking a uh, Buddhism class called The Asian Search for Self by Douglas Brooks. And he's an Indo-Tibetan scholar. And he was incredibly uh, inspiring and charismatic. Uh, he still is. And um, uh, in taking that class, I wrote a paper on Atman, which is the eternal self from the uh, Sanskrit. The Hindu tradition. The Hindu yeah. tradition. Yeah. Um, and that idea of there being, you know, this, well, from the Hindu tradition, they talk about this sort of permanent sense of everlasting self that is kind of dualistic with um, the traditional sort of physical body and everything else that you sort of think of in a conventional self, your your hopes, your fears, your wants, your self-identity. Um, a little bit different from the Buddhist conception of no self, which just so I'll unpack that too. So that idea is that essentially there is no permanent sense of self that you can really identify, that we're always changing. And so I got really interested in this and uh, said, okay, I'll try this course. And I went to a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation retreat, a Goenka, SN Goenka style of practice. And He's he, a, a teacher from India who was actually not a monk, but he opened – he did teacher, teachings all over the world. Yeah, he, he's – Businessman. Businessman yeah. from India and he really brought, I think, um, one of the main – sort of uh, carriers of the tradition from India to really, you know, between, you know, I think it was like the 4th or 7th century when Tibet was sort of the last uh, group to start making, create new sort of um, schools of Buddhism. Uh, and the 1970s, there was not really a lot happening uh, in India with um, the development of Buddhism and practice of Buddhism. Um, in terms of change. and But he brought it to the West, and that's when it started to begin flourishing. People like um, uh, Sharon Salzberg and uh, um, Joseph Goldstein and a lot of you know contemporary teachers started to learn from Goenka. So they have these uh, meditation retreats all over the world, and they're free, which is great. That's how all meditation retreats should be. And you just have to apply, and I did. I was this young 20-year-old, and I'm like, oh, I'm totally into it. This sounds great. And it's going to be over Christmas break. Um, and you know, most people, most kids my age were going out to uh, New Year's parties, and I was going to go sit in a <laughs> little wooden plank bed with someone that I can't even speak to next to me and, and meditate all day. And really, they take away everything from, well, back then there weren't really phones, but you, you couldn't write um, in a notebook, um, men and women were separate, and you really can only speak in the evening times if you had questions, and you can speak directly to the teachers. So that experience for me for ten days really blew me away. I was you didn't hate it because it sounds. I think a lot of people are going to say that sounds awful. It does sound awful, and I think only particular people would would really get a, something out of it. Some people would not, and and I think as a scientist, we're realizing there are some people who won't benefit from that. And in fact, they may benefit from something more simple, like you know, an app, like you know, yeah. like the template. I know a good one. Yeah. yeah, I know a good one too. <laughs> There's a lot of them actually these yes. days. But the point being is, you know, the jury's still out whether 
a particular you know um, a mechanism or mode of delivery for for um, teaching mindfulness like an app is better than say a ten day silent meditation retreat and so we don't know who it's good for but for me it was great I was I didn't have really any sort of psychological instability or um, real problems I was trying to confront but I was just intellectually curious about the mind so as a cognitive neuroscientist in training it was still an undergrad but I was in that field and into religion and Buddhism I was like wow this is amazing not only did it give me a profound sense of insight into my own mind, but this is really informative on how we understand emotion regulation and attentional control and all these different things that I've been thinking about in neurosciences uh, and training. So I just took that and, and started practicing um, myself daily and uh, never thought it would be part of my science. I you know, uh, finished my undergrad at University of Rochester and then Started working in a sleep lab in Columbia. I never really. I continued to practice, but there was no one really studying meditation before 2000. You know, in the neurosciences, and um, I went to graduate school. Started in 1999, and I continued to practice. And I wrote a paper on on intros- or meditation as being the new introspectionism. And my teacher was like, "Oh, this is very interesting." Um, and, but my advisor was very against it. He basically said, Dave, you need to stop thinking about all this Zen stuff. It's not going to be helpful for your career. You're not going to be successful in academia. And he said that explicitly to me. But I, I, I just kept it in the back of my mind, like this is something I really want to do if, if I can. And in 2004, there was this great event that happened at MIT with the Dalai Lama hosted by the Mind and Life Institute. And there were a bunch of Buddhist scholars, but also neuroscientists, you know, from Harvard that were on this panel and talking about the mind. And I thought, wow, you know, this, there's, there's people who are real scientists doing this work. And I heard about Richie Davidson, who you had on your show recently. And he's a, he was doing a lot of what, what we refer to as affective neuroscience. So people who study emotion and the, the neural substrates of emotion. And I heard that he was doing it and Steve Koslin and uh, Nancy Kamisher and all these great neuroscientists. I'm like, this is great. I'm going to try to do this. And I applied to a summer research institute in 2005, which was the second year that they did it. I got in and it was doing meditation and well, just meditation at the time uh, guided by Sharon Salzberg and Joan Halifax. These are great teachers, um, one from the Zen tradition. That's Joan Halifax. Sharon Salzberg in the insight tradition. And everyone's barefoot and, you know, we're talking science too. So it was a mixture of a retreat and uh, a science conference. And I was like, wow, this is this. This is my my people. (laughs) This is great. And Richie really was inspiring for me. He was there and became sort of a mentor for me ever since. So I then ended up becoming the because I was just finishing my PhD in 2005, they needed someone to help um, manage the research coordination that was happening through the Mind and Life Institute. And so I just finished my PhD and I was like, well, I, I guess I can, I can do that. I'm a neuroscientist by training now. And um, they needed someone to pick up the bandwidth where Richie just didn't have it. And so I applied and got this position as their senior research coordinator and, and uh, senior scientist and stayed with them for about three and a half years 
uh, part-time because I didn't want to quite give up academia to be with them full-time. But So I did that. And in the meantime, I um, got a uh, – well, before I actually – before I joined them, I got a grant from them um, to study meditation in um, uh, women with – diagnosed with fibromyalgia. These are people who have chronic pain mm. and fatigue. And it thought they, I thought it would be a good population to study how they regulate emotion and attention. So we did this study and – um, we saw that they got better uh, in many ways, and I can talk about the details. But that really just solidified my whole trajectory into doing this kind of work. And as I joined the Mind and Life Institute, it just exposed me to all these amazing people, Richie, Dan Goleman, John Kabat-Zinn, and all these great scholars, and including the Dalai Lama, which was you know incredibly inspiring given that I was so into meditation. So I just kept going, and I moved – to New York um, in 2007 to join a lab, a functional neuroimaging lab at Cornell uh, on the Upper East Side. And then um, we moved to Harvard actually in 2009. And that's when I gave up my official role with Mind and Life and became full-time faculty at Harvard. Uh, uh, Jeff Warren, who is my co-author on the new Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics book, you knew him from before we mm-hmm. rolled through Nashville and, and uh, went to your lab, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. You knew Jeff because he spent some time at following some of your research when you were at Harvard. Yep. And there was this moment that I read about in this great article mm-hmm. that Jeff wrote for, I think, a weird website called Psychology Tomorrow. Yes. I think that's the name of the yes. website. Yes. Well, I'll try to put a link somewhere so that people can find it. It's a great article. Jeff yeah. is a fantastic sure. writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody basically like – had some sort of enlightenment experience in the scanner yeah. while you were scanning their brain. Can mm-hmm. you, I may have said that incorrectly. Just give this the story. Okay. So being at Harvard, it, you know, the Crimson Shield brings a lot of interest uh, and people want to work with you just because you have that shield behind you. Um, and I started to – and because of my work with Mind and Life, I knew a lot of these um, contemporary mindfulness teachers. And Shinzen Young was one of them. Former guest on this podcast. Yeah, a really wonderful individual. And you know, one of the difficulties in studying meditation is that when you meditate, your mind can go to a lot of different places. And that, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with where you're letting your mind go to different places. And the idea is to try to just keep your attention on where your mind goes. Uh, in, in at least a, some styles of practice. Um, but what Shinzen brought to us was a very algorithmic approach to meditation, which was a noting and labeling technique. What does uh, that mean? So from a Burmese style, Mahasi Sayadaw was a teacher from Burma that taught um, Western teachers how to um, more I, I, uh, easily identify mental habits and he did that by instructing the, the students to just note whenever something comes to mind. Note it as a breathing or image or sound or, you know, um, taste or whatever, just some sort of label. Note it with attention and then label it. And so you're really just focusing your attention on whatever object arises and then label it with some sort of label. And it actually provides – I do a lot of this kind of practice. It provides some sort of distance. Yes. You you, yes. you start to see it non-judgmentally because you're framing it in your mind. You're like, oh, yeah. So you, so you might be having a bunch of thoughts about how you suck at meditation. 
But then you note it as doubt, and you're like, oh, this is just a mental – this is a mind state. Right. It's I'm not, not personal. I'm not doubting. I'm having a thought that I'm doubting. Yes. Right. That's a huge part of the practice. In, in a sense, you're separating the psychological distance that you're creating between you and your thoughts is, is um, a form of emotion regulation. In fact, when you look in the brain of, of anybody who does this, you'll see that when you label your emotion, it actually down-regulates your emotion. Uh, well, your amygdala reactivity to um, that emotional stimulus. So say you saw a bunch of words that were like fear or pain um, or scared. And you might actually have some little um, reactivity by your brain that generates emotion. Um, or you see a picture that's um, like a snake or um, somebody getting shot. Those will generate these negative emotional responses and a normal person will be able to regulate those emotional responses through prefrontal activity, activity in front of your brain. And the, the, the sympathetic nervous system, your sort of stress response, comes out of uh, direction from this area of the brain that's been talked about on the show before called the amygdala. And whenever it becomes, whenever you have an emotional reactive um, response to a stimulus, the amygdala turns on really um, bright in the brain and um, basically helps modulate the activity through your um, hypothalamus and pituitary and adrenal sort of access. This is the access for a stress response. And so um, in any case, whenever you label your emotions, you're going to downregulate that emotional response very effectively. So it's a, just a really powerful way to do it. Um, and so what Shinzen brought was a particular way to note and label experience in three modalities, visual, auditory, and somatic. And that was it. So instead of labeling and noting um, everything with random different labels, he said, let's focus on three different modalities. Specifically, we can then focus in these modalities um, alone, or we can note all of them. Um, but for our purposes in a lab, it was like this is wonderful because we have this nice way to delineate experience in visual, auditory, and somatic modalities. We can look in the brain and how these different modalities are, can be separated and distinguished. And he has a way of noting and labeling an experience called rest, which is a way to just stay focused in a particular modality, let's say here, um, the auditory, um, where you're just paying attention to any sort of external or internal mental chatter. Um, or external sound, and you're just focused, but on the absence of any stimulus being present. There's just, it, could be, it can be just restful, and this restful state. So we focused a lot on these states because we really were interested in how it contrasts with mind-wandering, which is a typical state that we often go to when we're not meditating and just having our mind relaxed. And so we had these advanced practitioners in the scanner as well. Uh, we then with very levels of experience, and that was important for us, and I'll tell you why in a sec. Um, so they had they varied between about 1,000 hours and over 10,000 hours of, of lifetime, meditation. lifetime meditation hours, formal practice, and we use a particular algorithm to determine how long they've been formally practicing on a cushion, and that's just a good metric for people's meditation experience. And what we found was um, there, were a f there were two uh, practitioners in particular who were having very deep states of um, open awareness, um, well, during a, a what we would call an open awareness practice, which is just allowing your mind to 
um, freely wander but with awareness and attention to where it goes. And in those states, they started to have what they refer to as cessation experiences. And cessation really refers to, well, it refers to the direct translation of nirodha samapati, which in the Sanskrit just refers to as cessation or, 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 or um, extinction of all time and space is what it refers to. Is this the same as nirvana? Yes. So it has a correlate to nirvana. Nirvana also is translated as, in some translations as extinction. Um, the idea is extinction or extinguishing. Ex- extinguishing. Yeah. Extinguishing. Yeah. So, um, and that's like a just blowing one out of a candle. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's just one way to translate the sort of temporary or fleeting experience of of all experience going away, all duality disappearing. Um, Me and, experiencing something instead of it's it's just that's right experience. That's correct. Yes. All that's left is the world. As my friend Sam would That's say. right. All that's left is the world and, and you are part of it. Um, and this non-dual experience is typically one of these most advanced states that, that meditators typically um, can either generate spontaneously through meditation practice or that they can cultivate it intentionally. Um, but more often it happens spontaneously, which in this case it happens spontaneously. And um, Shinzen refers to this as gone with a big G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in contrast to gone with a little g, which – so if you um, – so I'm, right now I'm holding up a bottle in front of Dan. He sees it mm-hmm. and then it goes away. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> so that's gone with a little g, meaning a, an object arises into your visual field and then it goes away. So that's gone with a little g, arising and passing of objects in your mental space. Gone with a big G is the cessation experience when all time and space drops away and there's no duality between things. It's this non-dual experience. And we had them indicate with a button press when they um, achieved uh, peak states of clarity. And the way we describe clarity is this sort of phenomenal intensity by which they experience an object. Well, wait. How can you press a button if you're not there anymore? That's, yeah, that's a good, good point. People ask that question all the time. Uh, in fact, um, what happens is uh, – uh, well, most of these advanced practitioners can do the button presses without it distracting them very much. Um, but what's good about the button press is it says that they just reached it. Um, and th- so we can look around the button gotcha. on the front side of it or or afterwards and see there's a plateau in the way your brain, blood, basically blood flow and dynamics of how blood responds in the brain is how we measure um, changes in the brain. Um, and it's a it's a very slow response. It takes twelve seconds for your for your for the blood changes to to occur from every particular state. This is how. So th- this guy who who yeah. in question who I be- I believe I actually met him. Jeff introduced me to him once. He's a mailman from Canada, if I That's if I right. recall correctly. Yes. He, Although there were two people. Oh, there were two people. Yeah. Okay. Well, the one that I know mm-hmm. about was the, the aforementioned mailman, and so basically he said. He pressed a button indicating, yeah, the lights went out. I just had a cessation mm-hmm. experience, which is, you know, like talked about in ancient mystical literature yep. as like a really big deal in your brain scanner. Yeah. And what do you believe him? Do you, do you look at the data? Is the, did the data support the, what this guy said? Well, we don't – there's no data from from previous uh, neuroimaging literature to, <laughs> to know what it, what it was. But what we did see was something unique in those two individuals. Um, 
And the, so we typically look at the magnitude of, of these bold blood oxygenated level dependent responses. These are just changes in blood flow that indicate it's an indirect measure of brain activity. And that's what we measure in an in a fMRI. And what we saw was that there was a, a change in blood flow in a particular part of the brain called the frontal polar cortex. And there's a lot of really interesting things about this brain region. And I'll just say what we observed was that these two individuals, more than anyone else, showed a dramatic uh, increase in the magnitude of, of activity in that, in that brain region throughout this particular run that they were experiencing in that state. And so, and then overall, that was a brain region that showed activity, um, well, more activity in that brain region. The more formal experience that these meditators had, we saw more activity in that in that region. So there was already reason to believe that this region was important for maintaining sustained attention and what we refer to as meta-awareness, which is... Aware that you're aware. Awareness of awareness. Yeah, yeah Minja Rinpoche was on your... Yes. Was yes. also here, and he talks about this all the time. And sometimes he even says, awareness of awareness of awareness. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. So, but it strikes me that as I listen to you talk about what an fMRI is, mm-hmm. it's like you're—it's like an echo of the thing, maybe an echo of the echo of the thing, because it's what's happening in the mind, and then what's happening in the brain, and then you're looking at blood fo- flow, which is a reflection of the, the two previous things. So, are, yeah. are, do you think, in hindsight, we're going to look back at the tools we have today as, you know, really weak in 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 terms of the quest that many. That you, I think, and some of your fellow contemplative mm-hmm. neuroscientists are on, which is to understand, you know, what is at the deep end of the pool in terms of contemplative practice. Is yeah. enlightenment real, and can we measure that yeah. in, a, a, in in the brain? Yeah. Uh, do you think we just don't have the tools to fully do that yet? Um, I think the methods are improving every day. Um, neuroimaging is only like forty, fifty years old, and only in the last uh, seventeen years has um, meditation been under the lens of neuroimaging. And in fact, there's only 21 neuroimaging studies that have looked at structure changes and about 80 that looked at uh, functional changes. And of those 80, only about 25 were actually quite good. 
And of those 25 that were quite good and the 21 that were um, good in terms of the structural changes, what you find is generally when you look across all styles of practice and you look at at a cross-section of all meditators, what you find is the – I'll give you four brain regions that change in size and function as a result of meditation is, number one, the frontal polar cortex. This part of the brain right behind your forehead. Um, it's part of the brain that two to three million years ago, our earliest hominid ancestors started to grow that area of our brain in dramatic comparison to, uh, in comparison to, say, uh, bonobos or other uh, related um, hominids. Um, Australopithecus, for example, was an early hominid that started to use tools and language. This is an area of the brain that grew dramatically in size. Um, there's all this really interesting um, – the uh, paleoneurologists will look at this part of the brain and they show that there's horizontal spacing distance between neurons in this part of the brain. That's, that's uh, uh, twice – relatively twice the size or space than any other part of our brain and no other – no other uh, hominid ancestor has that kind of dramatic difference. And what's so interesting about that is that that means that there's more space for connectivity for the other parts of the brain. So, I mean, it's highly involved in um, connecting with other circuits in the brain. And it's also really important functionally for flexibly switching between internal states of, of, of mental activity and, and processing the, the external sensory world. So it makes a lot of sense why that part of the brain is not only getting bigger in size as a result of meditation, but it's most active in advanced meditators. And that's across all the studies. Um, there's also, it's also part of a larger circuit um, called the frontal parietal control network. And all the areas of the brain that are, resp- that are part of that circuit, say the insula, which is another part of the brain that changes in size uh, and function as a result of practice, and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the parts of the inferior parietal lobe, they work together to create this circuit. And you see the changes in size and activity in those areas more than any other regions. Also, you see some activity that decrease in the default mode. And I know you've, we've talked about this mm-hmm. a lot. And this is a really important finding related to mind wandering or distraction because most of the time when we're distracted – we start moving into this narrative about ourselves in the past or reflecting on um, something negative typically um, or worrying or fantasizing about the future. And the network that's really responsible for, for um, generating that activity is called the default mode network. It's called default because it's the most uh, frequently active network when we're not doing anything. We just default to it. Yeah, we default absolutely. to it, yeah. exactly. And so you see decreases in, the, in that network during meditation practice. So th- those are the, the general findings across all the studies that are out there. Um, and, you know, the frontal polar cortex just seems to be a very special one um, that's also preserved in terms of the atrophy that we normally have across our lifespan. You know, unfortunately, at age 21, we're uh, already losing about a neuron a day. Um, so we're losing a lot of um, brain uh, space. And uh, it's if you practice meditation, there's a, there is a strong correlation now between the practice of meditation and the um, decreased atrophy. So your brain doesn't shrink as much, especially in, this, in these regions, the frontal polar cortex, the insula, and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. So you, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, well, mostly the frontal polar cortex and the insula specifically have been shown 
So you you just talked a lot, you teed me up nicely for the thing I, yeah. I've I've already uh, signaled I wanted to talk to you about, yeah. which is you you just talked about what studies show and do not show. Um, you wrote a big paper recently uh, that that generated a lot of headlines. Some of them, in my view, infuriating because they seemed to have no relationship to the paper itself. Anyway, the paper takes a, a hard. It was all it was written by a, a bunch of scientists and took takes a hard look at the science around meditation. And um, I'm going to sum it up, and then you'll tell me where I screw up the summary. But essentially, there's been a, a there's been an explosion of research into meditation in the last ten, fifteen years. Yeah, Six thousand studies. Yeah, so a ton, and um, it's it's generated a lot of excitement, and and in some cases hype um, about what meditation can do for your brain and your body, and like fix every problem in your life, and help you you know conjugate verbs in Esperanto or whatever. It's like whatever. <laughs> it, it gets a little crazy. Um, you tried to, to you guys yeah. tried to do what I view as a, a, a admirable thing, which is a reality check. Here's mm-hmm. actually the good science, and here's yeah. the bad science, and here's the problems with the science. Here's some issues going forward. Can you just describe what you were trying to say and why? Then some news outlets ran with headlines like the science around meditation is bunk and you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, there was one article – there was one headline oh, in Newsweek. Oh, do, you yeah. know, do you remember what it said? Oh, okay. Yes. It okay. said – I didn't want to bring attention to it. But yeah, it did say – after they interviewed me, I tried to give my, you know, my, my points that I was very clear on and you know, that you should read the article and get more detail on. But – Essentially, their headline was that uh, mindfulness is a meaningless word and the science is shoddy. <laughs> I was just like, I wrote back to the to the to the writer and and was like, "This is I never said anything about that. There's nothing. I didn't say that that the science was shoddy. The science is still very good, but it's young, and we should be cautious in how we interpret it." Um, and I didn't say that mindfulness mindfulness was a meaningless word. I said there's a lot of confusion about how we understand or how we operationalize the word. It's used in many different ways and we often don't contextualize it appropriately. And that we need to be careful how we do that. Sometimes we say, oh, I practice mindfulness meditation. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you practice focused attention meditation where you just focus on your breath? Does it mean that you do open awareness practice, which is a little different? Do you do both? Um, and, and often, you know, we just have to be clear on how we use the word and so the the paper was written by um, fifteen co-authors, all um, invested in this field. That must have been like herding cats. Yeah, it was at least a, a three-year-long process. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, and it was actually started Mind Mind and Life Institute helped uh, put it, bring us together. Where was it published, and what was it called? It was published in the uh, Perspectives on uh, uh, Psychological Science. Uh, uh, journal, yeah. uh, and if you go to the Newsweek article, I hope you go directly to the actual article. It's the article more. itself is reason- readable. I've yeah, read it. I think so. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it's it's supposed to be really a corrective to the hype that you see in the media more than anywhere else, um, because you know of the six the six thousand articles that are out there, there's a lot of claims that are made when they do small sample sizes, and you know, do, meaning that they didn't study enough people in order to make the claim they're making. Yeah, or there's not a very good control. Um, if you know, if you do anything, you go, you know, go. Let's go pick some flowers today, and um, then study what ha- if your well-being pre and post, or how how you feel afterwards. You feel better, and you probably will feel better. So, but so you describe what you mean by control. So a control is really important when you do any sort of um, scientific um, 
uh, investigation. So if you say you want to um, study a particular intervention, which is eight weeks, which is typically the amount of time that people spend uh, in a mindfulness-based intervention, which now has this sort of standard model that was based on John Kabat-Zinn's eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, um, that's sort of the standard in the field, but it's changing now. But in any case, if you want to study that in eight weeks, what happens over those eight weeks, you want to control it with another eight-week intervention that does that matches for the time spent in a group, uh, the charisma and enthusiasm of the teacher, and all those sort of what we would call nonspecific effects that you get in a mindfulness-based intervention but if you really want to know what the actual meditation piece is doing, then you have to control for everything else. And if you don't do that, then, of course, there's going to be benefits. Can't separate signal from noise if you don't do that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there haven't been a lot of studies that do this really well. In fact, of the 18,000 studies that look at clinical outcomes, there's only 47 that came out to be the most rigorous. Yeah. And if, of those 47, this was done in a 2014 paper uh, Madhav Goyal wrote um, uh, another very landmark paper that was a meta-analysis of all those articles out there that are good and that use an active control, which means that they control for those nonspecific effects. But so it, it doesn't mean the science is shoddy. It means no. it's young. It's so young. So people are just That's trying right. to figure this stuff out. And it's actually quite good. I said there was a moderate effect size that shows that, that, that the, the mindfulness-based intervention in comparison to the most rigorous standards – can show moderately significant uh, uh, increases in comparison to, um, say, uh, any sort of active control. So it could be just a social um, uh, um, support group or even in comparison to uh, some other like pharmacological interventions actually improves de- uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety. And, right. And, Let me pick up on that because yeah. Yeah, and that me- and the, you mentioned the meta-analysis that was yeah. done a few years ago right. that looked at the 47 good studies. Yeah. And people often cite that meta-analysis to say, uh, well, meditation doesn't Not help so because right. the, one of the conclusions was actually meditation is roughly as good as antidepressants. Yeah. But th- that's, that's actually great. Yeah. yeah. So may, you can probably do both. Yeah, right. D- d- exactly. D- that's a huge effect. I that mean, is. Uh, depression, as somebody I speak from experience, is is tough. Yeah. And I don't expect one thing to just fix it. Yeah. So exercise, meditation, Drugs, if your doctor recommends it, um, uh, having good relationships, getting enough sleep, eating well, you got to attack it from, you got to surround the football. So this just seems to argue, I I wrote a book called 10% Happier, so clearly I'm not in the (laughs) panacea business. No. But um, But you didn't swallow the the Kool-Aid like everyone, like a lot of people who are sort of immersed in this field have, which is really great how you're still skeptical, which is good. It's healthy. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my parents are scientists. Yeah. Uh, my wife's a scientist. Yeah. They wouldn't know. None of the people in my life would let me get away yeah. with this anyway. I mean, by the way, we're talking about crazy medical journals. I mean, I used to grow up. My parents used to get it in the mail. I remember they used to get a, a journal called JAMA, J-A-M-A, which is the big journal. And I always used to take a crayon and write P-A <laughs> before pajama. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm used to medical That's journals good. around the house. I, I like I like um, uh, I like I'm not particularly good at math, so I never became a scientist. Yeah. But I, I uh, constitutionally, I believe in rigor and skepticism. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think that the studies that we've seen uh, thus far uh, about meditation, if you look at the good ones, seem to indicate this is a good tool to have in your – a good arrow to have in your quiver. It's not going to fix everything, right. but it's good arrow, a right. good tool. And, and I think it, it, you know, a lot of times it gets 
you know, mindfulness-based intervention starts is attempted to use that to you know to really confront really difficult um, disease states, even like multiple sclerosis or epilepsy. And it's not going to cure those types of diseases. But what it does do is, is you're starting to see a lot of changes in the body and the mind to help um, improve recovery um, or to improve coping. And we know that these types of emotional responses to disease can be profoundly impacting the progression of disease. So, for example, we, um, there's a lot of data showing changes on uh, on how inflammatory genes are expressed. I think Richie and Dan talked about this as well. Uh, that's huge news because inflammation is a big part of disease progression. And if you can actually, through your, through just mental training, affect how inflammation decreases across the body, uh, then you're, what you're saying is that the mind itself has the capacity to slow down the progression of disease through a very specific mechanism that uh, relates to how, how the body um, attacks uh, any sort yeah, of disease state. incredible. Yeah, that is, in, that is incredible. So, and yes, also intuitive. And intuitive. So when, it, when people say, is mindfulness good for sleep, for example, uh, the jury's mixed or the, 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 the data's mixed. Because there's different types of sleep problems and in, I'll just say really quickly that um, for insomnia, there's different aspects of insomnia. So sleep onset insomnia, which is having difficulty fall asleep to fall asleep and sleep maintenance on insomnia is the difficulty in which you stay asleep. And a meditation or mindfulness-based interventions show uh, a pretty uh, decent effect size for helping promote the sleep onset or uh, improve sleep onset insomnia. So people who are in their heads and ruminating when they're lying in their bed, that's it's good for them. But when it starts to uh, when you for sleep maintenance insomnia, it may not be helpful at all. In fact, the more you meditate, the less efficient your your brain gets at staying asleep. Uh, and I can tell you why that is. The the Buddha, if you translate the word Buddha, it just means awake. You know, <laughs> right. the point is not to sleep. The <laughs> right. point is to be awake. Yeah, and you see this in retreat settings that people yeah, you meditate. never sleep. Right, right. There's a you lot mean, of sleep inefficiency. You wake up a lot. Well, but is it inefficiency or is it just you need le- – you're suffering less and you need less sleep? And that's Judd Brewer, another a scientist mm-hmm. friend of yours. That's his theory. You're suffering less. You don't need as much sleep. That's right. We just re- – we refer to as this metric of, of measurement in sleep. Uh, as efficiency, it's just how how well you um, stay uh, uh, in these stages and progress through stage one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and if you have awakenings, we call that sleep inefficiency. But that's just a metric by which we measure how much you're sleeping at night. Doesn't mean that it's that you're not rested um, or that it's it's you're decreasing the benefits of sleep. We don't know that. I can see that you want to take a drink of water, and your timing is good because I have a lot to say in order to set up this next question. So you were very uh, generously and graciously a part of this um, uh, gonzo cross-country meditation tour that Jeff Warren and the the aforementioned Jeff Warren and I did um, almost a year ago. uh, And uh, it was in January of 2017, and um, we got this big orange bus and drove across the country and met people uh, who – are meditators or want to be meditators and uh, and talk to them about the practice and the hurdles to getting over the practice, and that has all resulted yeah. in this new book. Um, 
It has also resulted in a new course on the 10% Happier app because we went and shot with you at Vanderbilt and went into your lab and, and uh, we put a very nice uh, woman in a, in a brain scanner and had her meditate with her brain and an MRI. Um, I couldn't get in because I was too claustrophobic. <laughs> I guess that video is going to be on the app too. Um, so just tell, tell, tell us yeah. about this course. Oh, the course was very exciting. I really had a great time doing it. And what's so unique about it is that it, it embeds some of the science into the guided practice. Um, and I think that's a very unique way to experience meditation because sometimes, you know, some people say, well, why do we need the science anyway? Um, why not, you know, just do the practice. And if it feel like it, if you benefit from it, then do it. If you don't feel like you don't benefit, then or if you feel like you don't benefit, don't do it. But you know, science has been shown now to really help um, provide motivation for people. Absolutely. For me. Yeah. It's, it's the it's lingua almost, franca of our culture. You know, yeah, if you can really say is. science, mm-hmm. science. Supports yes. this. It has an evidence, yeah. There's evidence and it's good evidence to supporting this practice. Um, you know, it, it's helpful for, for many, especially Westerners, to, to do something. Um, and it, so uh, I try to embed what we know and what we don't know about uh, meditation and the effects of it on brain and body and mind and uh, into guided practices. So um, we spent some time uh, highlighting some of the video footage that we captured uh, while Dan and crew were at Vanderbilt. For example, when we put um, our – actually our director, Linda Manning, into the scanner, um, she's an advanced uh, practitioner in fact and I was – we were able to just look in real time at what her brain was doing when we asked her to meditate for three-minute blocks and then move into a discursive mind-wandering state and then meditate again. And what you saw dramatically was exactly what we predicted and what we saw in our advanced meditators with Shinzen was the the same sort of frontal polar cortex and this frontal parietal control network, this higher-order attentional network active during meditation. And uh, the... Um, default mode network kind of regions were were um, more active during the uh, mind wandering state, and one unique uh, finding was that there was just through awareness. This is what we also saw with our advanced meditators: the decrease in in activation in the limbic regions, which is very unique. Now, that's actually st- that's data that hasn't been published yet, but um, it was exciting because. We were jumping up and down <laughs> because it's like, oh, look, we can see decreases in activity in, in sort of baseline limbic um, activity. Why is the limbic area, the limbic system important? So this is an area that you typically see resp- responsivity, as I mentioned earlier, during an emotion, emotional stimulus. And then if you see uh, activation there and you actively try to regulate your emotions through some sort of strategy like suppression um, or avoidance even, um, but some sort of strategy, some cognitive strategy, um, it usually decreases activity in, in the amygdala and the hippocampus and, and the associated regions. These are all in, in parts of the medial temporal lobe. Um, and those structures are just typically important for generating memories and emotions. And so to see that those areas just decrease their baseline just from paying attention. That was very unique. And so what, what we're basically seeing is a new way of regulating emotion without doing anything, just by being aware. And by being aware, you're actually dropping the threshold of activity in, this, in these limbic areas. That's very unique. And just, to, just talk about how this would work in one's mind. I'll, I'll see if I can say it and you just yeah. tell me where I screw up. 
as 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 we're okay. establishing yeah. as a habit here, yeah. as a pattern here. But essentially, if anger arises, yeah. like anger is a big one for me. I get mm-hmm. a lot of anger. Um, instead of fighting it or acting on it, mm-hmm. uh, just investigate it and let it pass. Yeah. And you see, actually, it will pass. Um, it may come back a nanosecond later, but each burst will come and go. And if you just uh, allow it to to g- come and go, then yeah. you, you, the brain is not activating the same way. Yeah, and what we see is if at the baseline, if your baseline for activity in those motion generative areas are actually decreasing, then it's going to be harder for it to get to go higher um, uh, and actually lead to any sort of stress response. Because you're not feeding it with ne- ne- compulsive neurotic That's thinking. right. Yes. That's right. But it has further to go. And in fact, what you see even in, in these advanced meditators is they respond even more um, in more magnitude or greater power um, to an emotional stimulus like people crying or s- babies screaming or something negative. And, but the unique part um, is that they recover faster mm. than meditators do. Um, and so they have a very steep curve in how they respond to emotion. And this is what we refer to as equanimity. And part of the mechanisms by which we think meditation work is through this way of regulating emotion. So there's, it's a very unique way. And most people who study emotion regulation don't talk about awareness and awareness alone without judgment as a form of regulation. But that's exactly what we're seeing. You're just, you're just observing. And eventually through observing, the anger will come up. And then it will reside or it will it'll just come back down. This isn't passivity. No. This is not indifference either. It's experiencing emotion fully really but allowing to yourself to recover rapidly through what we would consider equanimity. And with clarity, you're, exper- you're approaching the emotion rather than avoiding it, which most people do with negative emotions. So you go into all of this in the course. Yeah, we, we do talk about this, yeah. And, and so the way the course works, if, and I don't know if – Listeners have taken courses on the app before, but you you get uh, a one, two, three-minute video clip that, you know, we'll see me and Jeff and, and Dave horsing around in the lab, and um, it's all pretty cool stuff. And then that will stop, and you'll get – it will slide directly into a guided audio meditation from you, Dave, and that's – and every day you take the class where you can just binge it all at once, you, that's the way it works. Is, my, yeah. Yeah, is that how it works in this course? Because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we You're did. in the weird position of having done a course on an app that bears my brand, but I haven't seen it and you have. Yeah, actually, I didn't see the video. I saw the video clip separately, but when we recorded them – there's seven different meditations, and they all have some element of science in them, as it relates to the video clips. And right. So okay, I talk cool. about that one that I just talked that I referred to. Um, we talk about so one of the the mechanisms we we wrote a paper a while ago um, in our Frontiers in Human Neuroscience uh, uh, journal about the mechanisms by which mindfulness works, and we listed six different mechanisms: um, attention regulation, so learning stability and control. Um, and uh, uh, emotion regulation is the second one, learning equanimity um, and uh, in- inhibitory control. And I should just unpack that a little bit. Those are two mechanisms. So attention regulation, stability, stability and control. So how you sustain attention um, and how well you can um, basically stay on an object, engage on that object. And then be able to disengage from that object. Um, object just meaning the thing you're paying attention to. Exactly. So yeah. if it's the breath, um, how quickly can you, you know, 
disengage from that object and pay attention to something new, maybe like uh, something else that's relevant to you, anything. Um, uh, and that's really um, what you see a problem in um, attention regulation is when people get stuck on paying attention to something. Um, a word comes up and then they get stuck on it and they actually miss the other things that are coming up around them that's maybe relevant to them. This is what we call the attentional blink when you just miss something because you're so focused on whatever mm-hmm. you're paying attention to. And you see meditators are better at able to engage and disengage very quickly. So this has a lot to do with attention regulation. Emotion regulation we talked a little bit about now, being able to generate equanimity to come back and recover from an emotion, uh, an emotion quickly uh, and to inhibit uh, distraction from arising or from moving or letting distraction take you away from that object of focus. Then the third one, uh, actually, the first one was intention and motivation. So I did that out of order. But intention and motivation is another mechanism by which you move from an effortful to an effortless type of practice, um, meaning that as you continue practice, it it becomes more automatic. And you're really just retraining your brain to be uh, more adaptive in how you um, experience the world. And that uh, actually involves another mechanism. The fourth mechanism, uh, which would be extinction and reconsolidation. So you're actually extinguishing. There's the extinguish and the nirvana uh, mm-hmm. word. But in this case, it's used as extinguishing an, a bad habit, a bad mental habit, and, and um, changing that with a more adaptive mental habit. And that becomes more automatic. So extinction and reconsolidation is that fourth mechanism. And the fifth one uh, refers to uh, prosociality. So, so in, it is also relates to your intention and motivation. And first, when you first start practice, you may be like, I just want to decrease my stress in my life. Um, or, uh, you know, I want to be able to pay attention better and be less distracted. So that's very self-focused. But what happens over time is that we find that your motivation shifts to be other-focused. Yeah, I've noticed this. It's very frustrating. <laughs> right. I just wanted to decrease stress, and now I care about other people. Yeah, I know. It's annoying. Right? And then you actually – what you do, you find yourself in other people's heads almost. Mm-hmm. Um, the empathic skill develops, the theory of mind. How do you – what are other people thinking? Um, for some people, that's actually almost too sensitive, and they should turn that empathic radar down because they start thinking about what other people are thinking, and then you realize that you're just sensitive to other people. But that is a skill that, that is um, changing over time. Um, and so you're more altruistic in your motives. So you want to help people more rather than and that, that actually benefits you. And the last one is sensory clarity. So those are the six mechanisms by which we think meditation functions. And that sensory clarity really refers to a body, more embodied type of approach to experiencing the world. And that just means rather than always anticipating or expecting how uh, things should be in the world, um, you're, you're focusing more on sensation and what we would refer to as a bottom-up way of you're, experiencing the you're world. You're not stuck in your head. You're not stuck in your head. Exactly. You're more about just what is the, what's your body telling you. Yeah. And that, that's a huge part of, um, of learning how to experience the world in, in a more authentic way. That's a good place to leave it because just listing those six highly desirable attributes yeah. is a really – inspirational um, note. Yeah. For sure. I agree. It's, so yeah. for, for people who want to learn more about you, obviously they can check out the new course on the app and even if you're not a, a member of our uh, app community, you can, uh, if you download the app, you can see, uh, we usually, I'm sure we'll do that in this case, teaser clips and um, 
so there's ways to get access to it, uh, if not the whole thing. Uh, but beyond that, how if people want to learn more about you, what can they do? Um, you can go to contemplativeneurosciences.com. That's a good place to find me and our lab. And uh, there's a lot of resources there for all the other centers around the around the country, at least, that, that do this kind of work. Um, uh, you can go to the Mind and Life Institute. They also have great resources. But yeah, contemplativeneurosciences.com is a good place. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate oh, it. My I, promise, I promise we won't delete the recording of this one. Oh, good, yeah. Well, well, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, there's so much data out there that's fascinating, but we'll, we'll continue these dialogues. I'm Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this podcast is not yeah. going anywhere. Yeah. Thank All you, right, buddy. Wonderful. Thanks so it. much, Dan. Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember, we're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.